Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. The Stonewall Inn was the place to go. Well, so thought the growing number of gay men and lesbians moving to New York City from across the US. Admittedly, it was a dive, with toilets that constantly overflowed, no running water, no proper fire escapes, and drinks that were watered down beyond recognition. It was run by the Mafia, who passed envelopes stuffed with money to the police in what was known as Gayola. In return, they mostly left them alone. When there was a raid, the corrupt cops would tip off the owners. They'd hide the alcohol where they didn't have a license to sell and cover up any other illegal activities. Then the regular lights turned on, signalling that everyone should stop touching. But the thing that so many loved about the Stonewall was that you could dance, all night if you wanted. It was pretty much the only place in New York where gay men and lesbians could do that. There were two dance floors in the stone wall. The interior was painted black, making it very dark inside, with pulsing gel lights. At the back, a smaller room was frequented by queens who checked their makeup in cracked compact mirrors and teased their hair into wild styles. They received a bitter reception at every other gay bar or club, but the Stonewall welcomed them. Then there were the runaways and the homeless gay youths who shoplifted to afford the entry fee. They were too young to be let into the legitimate bars, but at the Stonewall they turned a blind eye. And so it became a community centre of sorts, for young gay men rendered homeless by family and institutional rejection, and for those who had taken refuge in New York in hope of finding a place where they could be themselves. But not everyone was so enamoured by the Stonewall Inn. The mayor, Robert F. Wagner Jr., was outright livid. In response to the number of gay men and lesbians moving to the city, he pledged a clean-up. He revoked the alcohol licences of all the gay bars. Undercover police officers were sent out to entrap as many gay men as possible. Thousands were arrested for crimes against nature, solicitation or lewd behaviour. Some had their names published in newspapers, which meant they lost their jobs. Even what you wore was policed. Fewer than three pieces of clothing deemed appropriate to your gender could put you in handcuffs. Then on Saturday the 28th of June 1969, something changed. At 1.20am, four plainclothes policemen in dark suits and two patrol officers in uniform arrived at the Stonewall Inn's double doors. They announced... Police, we're taking the place. It came as a complete surprise. Nobody was tipped off this time. The lights came up, the music stopped, and the police instructed people to show their IDs. Ejected patrons spilled out onto the street. At first the atmosphere was festive. There was laughing and joking, people striking poses and bowing. Crowd gathered, applauding the showmanship, encouraging them further. One bystander shouted, Gay power! Someone else began singing, We shall overcome. An officer shoved a transvestite who responded by hitting him on the head with her handbag. The crowd began to boo. Then the lesbian in handcuffs was forcibly dragged out of the bar. She escaped repeatedly and fought with four of the police officers swearing and shouting. A sense of discomfort spread quickly as restless high spirits merged into anger. Coins were thrown, pinging against the side of the police wagons. The woman looked at the bystanders and shouted, 
Why don't you guys do something? An officer picked her up and heaved her into the back of the wagon. The sense of quarters became stones and bottles as the crowd became a mob. The police tried to restrain them, knocking a few people down, inciting the mob further. Rubbish bins, bottles, rocks and bricks were hurled at buildings, breaking the windows. Tires were slashed and another group overturned a police van. The crowd cheered and started an impromptu kick line. Just as the line got into full kick routine, the police advanced again, wielding their batons, chasing the crowd down the street. One bystander reported, quote, I just can't ever get that one sight out of my mind. The cops with the batons and the kick line on the other side. It was the most amazing thing. And all of a sudden, that kick line. I think that's when I felt rage, because people were getting smashed with bats. And for what? A kick line. There was a collective feeling that the community had taken enough. It wasn't anything tangible anyone had said to anyone else. It was not an organized demonstration. It was the coming to a head on that one particular night in that one particular place. By 4 a.m., the streets had nearly been cleared. People sat on doorsteps or gathered in nearby parks, dazed in disbelief. There was a surreal and eerie quiet but electricity was still in the air. Mark didn't throw a brick or confront a police officer that night, but he had something almost as potent. As the chaos erupted, his friend handed him a piece of chalk and instructions. The homeless teenager set off up the street to scribble three words on the pavement. Tomorrow night, Stonewall. The next day, leaflets were handed out with the same message, urging this spontaneous act of defiance into something bigger. It did the trick. The next night, thousands gathered in front of the stone wall, which had opened again. The crowd spilled out of the bar, up the street and into the adjoining blocks. Street youths and queens were joined by police provocateurs, curious bystanders and even tourists. In one night, a sudden public affection erupted. One witness said, quote, from going to places where you had to knock on the door and speak to someone for a peephole in order to get in, we were just out, we were in the streets. Trans activist Martha P. Johnson climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy bag onto the hood of a police car, shattering the windshield. As on the previous evening, fires were started in garbage cans throughout the neighborhood. More than 100 police were present. Kick lines and police chases waxed and waned. When the police captured demonstrators, the crowd surged to recapture them. Street battling ensued again until 4am. The riots played out for around five days. The message was clear, things were changing. Those who were oppressed were fighting back. Within weeks, the Gay Liberation Front, GLF, had formed. Although there had been gay rights groups before, Many of those involved in the riots considered their tactics too weak. The GLF took their name from the National Liberation Front, who were fighting the US in Vietnam. They took their tactics from the civil rights movement, with the ideal that they could restructure American society. They were also the first group to ever use the word gay in their title. Two British activists, Bob Meller and Aubrey Walters, were hanging out in New York at the time of the Stonewall Uprising. 
they met at the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, called by the Black Panthers. Returning to Britain, they were full of big ideas and fighting spirit. They organised the first GLF London meeting at the London School of Economics Library on the 13th of October 1970. It was a modest beginning, with 19 people attending, but it grew rapidly and became a watershed moment in British queer history. GLF was an enthusiastic but often chaotic mix of anarchists, hippies, left-wingers, feminists, liberals and counterculturalists. Founding member Peter Tatchell said, quote, Despite our differences, we share radical idealism, a dream of what the world could and should be, free from not just homophobia, but the whole sex-shame culture, which oppressed straights as much as the LGBTs. We were sexual liberationists and social revolutionaries out to turn the world upside down. Like the civil rights movement, the group used non-violent civil disobedience. They also organised extravagant acts of street theatre to draw attention to gay rights issues, question the ideals of the nuclear family and challenge the patriarchy. Queer deviance was celebrated and heterosexual masculinity rejected for its domination and aggression that oppressed both the LGBT community and women. These ideologies placed the GLF as a natural ally of the women's liberation movement. Although the GLF was dominated by men, there were women involved, including several who helped write the manifesto. One of the early female members was Annie Brax, who said of her first meeting, quote, The room was dark, damp and dingy, packed with hundreds of smiling, kissing, chatty men, some very strangely dressed. I just knew I looked out of place in my walrus skirt and tights, with my neatly tied back hair and uptight face. There were no more than 20 women. Despite not feeling like she fitted in, she was back less than a month later. She soon became a regular at the weekly meetings. Housing became a key issue for the group. At the time, many people faced homelessness, while thousands of properties stood empty, waiting for demolition. It was a particular problem for the queer community, as they were more likely to be rejected by landlords, vilified or even beaten up in their quest for a home. Ideas around communal living began circulating, creating safe spaces for the gay community. Annie was especially interested in the idea of creating environments where, quote, children are the shared responsibility of the group, no gender role system would operate, and where all would be equal. The squatting scene exploded as people took direct action to address the injustice, while sorting the practical problem of having nowhere to live. The area around London Fields in Hackney became a haven of lesbian communes. It is estimated that there were 50 women-only households scattered throughout the streets behind Broadway Market, including one terrace of seven women's squats on Lansdowne Drive. Although not all were lesbian households, the majority were. Annie joined the Hackney squatting scene. The collective action of changing the locks held symbolic significance to her, and there were always numerous Yale barrels and keys in circulation. It was often the local residents who told lesbians when a house was going to become empty. They didn't want a neglected property next door as it might become overrun with rats and contribute to the dereliction of the street. Lesbians were recognised as a group who repaired houses and got them back on their feet. By November 1971, an East London branch of the GLF had formed. 
It was a busy time of regular meetings, thinkings, day meetings on a specific topic, and gay days where a park would be liberated for the afternoon from heterosexual conformity. The following July, Victoria Park got its first gay day. The organisation had grown a lot too, and as a result, the meetings were becoming unmanageable. Annie describes them as, quote, an aimless merry-go-round with much cosy chat and a lot of male cruising. The women were still swamped by men in terms of numbers and the types of issues discussed. Some older gay men didn't feel the women belonged at all as lesbian sexuality wasn't illegal. They argued lesbians weren't as oppressed as they were able to live without fear of criminal charges. The women organised amongst themselves and Annie was part of a group that began publishing Come Together, a magazine for women in the GLF. Their next move was one described by Annie as predictable. They split from the men. Annie said of the decision, quote, Amidst moans of, don't leave us sisters, what will we do without you? We walked out. It was sad, but the right thing to do. Many of the GLF women, including Annie, joined the women's liberation movement. However, they did not find themselves any more welcome there. At the Skegness Conference in 1971, when they tried to get the subject of lesbianism on the gender, they were charged with being private problems. It would take another five years and much debate and antagonism until lesbianism was no longer an issue that divided the movement. By 1974, internal disagreements led to the GLF splintering and its eventual collapse. Yet despite its short life, its impact was huge and its legacy still felt today. Out of GLF London came groups in France and Italy. There was Gay Switchboard, the Brixton Fairies, Gay Men's Press and the world-renowned theatre troupe Blue Lips. The campaigning groups Stonewall and Outrage developed from the same route. But one of its greatest legacies was the establishment of groups and networks of individuals who were able to immediately challenge attitudes and fight for rights when the AIDS-HIV pandemic broke. Annie would go on to become part of the Spare Rib magazine collective, a national organiser for CND and a director at Mind, the mental health charity. She is also the author of Mental Health in Crisis. While Stonewall and the Gay Liberation Front launched the sexual revolution, they were by no means the first queer activists, as we shall hear after the break. Do you enjoy stories of women who broke the rules and changed the way our society thinks and acts? Well, there are loads more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk. There is also a walking tour app where you can take yourself on guided tours around local heritage landmarks and resources for younger members of the family to learn about this fascinating but largely untold history. Find all that and more at eastlondonwomen.org.uk Words are important to identities. At the turn of the last century, there wasn't the vocabulary for women to define their sexuality. The word lesbian or bisexual simply didn't exist. It is logical to assume women fell in love with each other, sometimes madly. Identifying those people was difficult though, as they didn't identify themselves. And you could say, who are we to ask anyway? So pre-Stonewall, queer history is fragmented. 
What we do know is that the new woman movement in the late 19th century challenged, and in some cases outright rejected, heteronormative values of marriage and motherhood. The new woman argued for independence, but not just independence of mind. She wanted independence of dress and physical activities such as cycling. She also wanted sexual liberation. Leading suffragettes like Christabel Pankhurst rejected marriage, while others formed female residential communities which provided alternative domestic structures. Love may have been encouraged by the all-female environment and anti-male ethos, and they certainly had a more fluid attitude to female friendships. One woman who sought a soulmate outside of marriage was Eva Slauson, who was born in West Ham in 1882. Although illegitimate, Eva was adopted by her maternal grandparents. In her early 20s, she moved to Leighton to live with her mother's sister, Edith, and her half-sister, Gertie. They lived in a flat above the general store that they ran. Eva began her working life in domestic service at the Duke of Westminster's house, which her grandmother thought of as, quote, the best for girls. The oppressive regimes clearly took their toll on Eva, and she became so unwell she was forced to give it up. After her parents paid for shorthand and typing lessons, Eva found work as a legal secretary in a solicitor's office in Walthamstow. Her diaries show that she became increasingly bored by the work, but the paying conditions gave Eva a better standard of living than most. She could, for example, afford to go away for summer holidays and establish a book collection. Non-conformist Christianity formed the backbone of Eva's spiritual and political outlook. In 1908, she joined the Trinity Congregational Church, attracted by its new theology preacher, Mr. James. Supporters of new theology argued that socialism would bring about the ideal social order on earth advocated by Jesus. Many new theologians joined the Independent Labour Party, ILP, including Eva. The latent branch of the ILP set up in 1908, and Eva attended her first meeting a few months later. She nervously followed a long string of men filing into the room, no doubt wondering if she had made a terrible mistake in coming. She breathed a sigh of relief when she saw three married women with their husbands. She took a seat beside them. They spoke kindly to her, and invigorated by the conversations, she brought some pamphlets from the bookstore afterwards. Eva was also inspired by the women's suffrage movement. While out one day in central London, a spectacle had quite a profound effect on her. Thousands of women carrying banners, large and small, each one identified the group the carriers belonged to, including clerks, typists, lacemakers and nurses. In her diary, Eva described the banners as exceedingly beautiful and marvelled at the whole procession, which took an hour to pass, with bands playing music and the whole crowd cheering and clapping. A few weeks later, she would see another Votes for Women demonstration. Once again, a huge crowd had gathered, with Christabel Pankhurst in the middle, dressed in college gown and cap. She stood with a smile on her beautiful face, a slender arm outstretched, appealing for an audience. She seemed quite undaunted by the, quote, gang of roughs, heckling from the front of the group. Eva described the whole scene as, quote, an inspiring figure in an inspiring spectacle. Eva was no stranger to the conflict caused by the question of female franchise. She found herself in arguments with friends and neighbours over it. In her diary, she despairs at it all being, quote, 
so difficult and dark and one longs for the clearer sight and greater courage. The antagonism comes closer to home when a boy came into the shop run by her aunt and Gertie and fired a pistol. He was chased off, but Eva was left worried. Edie and Gertie were militant suffragettes. Writing in her diary, Eva said, quote, I wish it were not so generally known they are militants. Eva did not agree with militancy and at times argued fiercely with her family on the issue. On hearing the news of the death of Emily Wilding Davidson, Eva said, quote, I cannot express what a shock this news was to me. Can such martyrdom and sacrifice really be necessary? Will it hasten the long-for result? Eva does join the Women's Freedom League, a breakaway from the Pankhurst Women's Social and Political Union, which many complained of being too autocratic. After attending one of its meetings, she declared, quote, The moment I entered the room, I had a sensation of being among my own people. Why do feminist issues also ignite Eva's mind, including the nature of relationships between men and women? She found Edward Carpenter's Love's Coming of Age, a series of essays on gender and sexual identities, quote, full of suggestion and as I read my mind wanders off along various lines. She also declares in a letter to her friend Ruth Slate that, quote, my views on marriage are altering to an alarming extent. I really believe some people will call my opinions immoral. Despite these radical ideas about relationships, Eva still appeared to believe that marriage and motherhood was the ideal for women. She seemed plagued by a sense of loss and complained, quote, single women are outside the heart of things. Our friendship with happily married men and women after all only touches the fringes of their lives. Then in 1911, a series of events would irrevocably change Eva's life. She met Mina Simmons, an older married woman. There was an immediate attraction between them and a close friendship developed. Mina stated on a number of occasions that her marriage was not a happy one. There is also an indication in Eva's diaries that the two women recognised a difference about themselves, an understanding that marriage would never be quite right for them. After Mina's husband died, Eva moved into her home in Walthamstow to provide comfort and support. Mina was heavily pregnant at the time, and after the birth, Eva instinctively took on a parenting role. She even expresses jealousy when an old friend of Mina's comes to help out, feeling as if she was being pushed out of her maternal role. Through a new close physical proximity, the relationship between the women acquires a new dimension. In her diary, Eva talks of sleeping in Mina's arms, saying, quote, such waves of love pass through me at times, I quiver with feeling, and tonight in bed it seems our very souls and bodies mingled in love and sympathy. Their relationship is clearly profound, Eva describing herself as, quote, merging in spirit with Mina and being, quote, stirred in my whole being, but I tremble to write of such moments in their sacredness and intensity. Increasingly frustrated by her work, Eva secures a scholarship to study at the Woodbrook Settlement, a Quaker institution for religious and social study. Before she departs, Mina tells Eva she wants to give her a ring. Before she has the chance, Eva dies suddenly and unexpectedly at only 33 years old. 
Following Eva's death, Mina consoles herself in letters to Eva's friend Ruth. She says, quote, I found myself longing for Eva more and more, and it's getting harder to bear. When I look at my oneness with Eva and of what I feel towards you, the gulf seems and is wide indeed. Mina's letters to Ruth also suggest that perhaps she saw the relationship with Eva in sexual terms. She wrote, quote, How I pray, dear, earnestly for God to take away my intense longing for her. Sometimes it seems just too much to bear. I will tell you of my thoughts on the intermediate sex another time. And a few weeks later, she writes again, quote, I'm going to be daring and write and speak on the sex question. I will, I will. Sadly, there are no further letters containing Mina's thoughts. There is much evidence in Eva's diaries and Mina's letters to suggest their relationship was much more than a close friendship. It certainly challenged gender norms, even if it struggled to articulate a clear alternative to heterosexuality. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we take an audio walking tour into Hackney's radical past. If you enjoyed this series, please subscribe, rate and review. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For show notes, reading lists and further stories about East London women, visit our website eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the National Heritage Lottery Fund for their support of today's episode.